Are you curious about bodies, pleasure, and possibilities? And what about curious about what others are up to on the planet when it comes to pleasure, sex, and play? Have you considered what pleasure can do for your life, your body, and your bank account? Do you know something magical, delightful, and out of this world orgasmic is not only possible for you, but totally available to you? If you're ready to be the magical, sexual, sexy beast you know you can be, and you just need the tools to get there, you're in the right place. Now, here's the host of The Pleasure Zone, sensual movement artist, relationship, and sex alchemist, Milica Yelenich. Welcome, my sweet pleasure seekers. Today, we are going to have a fun, fun conversation about sex myths, not sex mass, as in the eve of or the day of sex, although a sex mass would be great. The ma- Actually, it would be more like the mass for sex. So you'd be going to church. and I don't know if that would work, guys. But anyway, we'll find out, especially when we have Massey Brackett talking next week, all about faith and sex, reconciling those two. So we'll find out if sex mass could be real. But for now, we're going to talk about sex myths and see all the different sex myths that have been floating around forever. Well, we're going to look at some of the top ones anyway, because we'll see how many I can get through today. If you're brand new to this show, which some of you might be, you might be finding out that you have just joined in on the wackiest, wildest ride of your life. And you're like, hey, what am I doing here? You are on the pleasure zone where we talk about sex bodies and all things pleasure, as well as where we talk about things like not just the bodies, but the people in them, the relationships, and how do we navigate this and some of the things that bodies go through as well. So we're really going to be looking at and having quite the dive today into the sex myths that are going around. Although if you've listened to this show, you know that we talk about all kinds of things. And I have tapped into some sex myths several years ago, I think. So this show has been on for, it'll be nine years coming soon. There's over 400 episodes available. I know that's a lot of episodes. Don't get overwhelmed. Scroll through my list. See what jumps at you. And if you don't actually know what show could work for you or would contribute to you, send me a message. I'd be happy to say, hey, try this one out and I'll send you a link. Yes, I will actually do that for you. So today's sex myths. Oh, and why would I even be talking about this? So I talk about this stuff because I am a sex and intimacy coach as well as a holistic health practitioner. And I love working with people to have greater pleasure in their life and have their bodies function way, way better. So there's some consistency in the sex myths that I have been finding online. And one of the things that, uh, that I think is, is a sex myth that wasn't written down as a sex myth was actually the idea that sex education is something that we get in grade school and then we're supposed to be done with it. It's kind of like when you're in kindergarten, you've learned the basic food groups and then you're supposed to end with that, but you never learn what to do with them. So you have no idea what to do with these basic food groups. You just know they exist. Well, sex ed is kind of similar, especially with teens uh, in in uh, different institutions when we're getting information, we might understand some concepts of sexuality. We might understand some things about our bodies. Even then, I have to say that even though most people have taken the basics of biology through either their health classes in school, or somehow they've gotten this information, 
they still don't always know because it's not something that's maybe significant to you to remember. So lots of these things are probably put on the back burner. They're not really things that people really thought about, or if they've heard some of these sex myths in their life, uh, they just assume they were true because they didn't go on to look at more information. So one of the sex myths <laughs> that's maybe not written down as a sex myth is that, you know, you get all your sex ed. Well, that's really choking me up. You get all of your sex education somehow before you're like 18 years old. No, sex ed definitely can continue on in, in your life. And I encourage you to continue your sex education your whole life because things change and grow, uh, you change and grow, and your ideas about what you desire will change and grow. Okay, so that's an unspoken kind of sex myth that's out there. There is a sex myth that most women want relationship uh, sex and men want casual uh, trysts or something like that. So is that even true? Well, it's not true across the board, for sure. There are lots of women that I personally know who enjoy great casual trysts. And there are lots of men I know who are very dedicated to relationship. I'm married to one who is all about relationship to have sex. Maybe when he was younger, he wasn't. But uh, he's he's definitely one of the, I would say that I can't actually label my husband this because he's never acknowledged this, but I would label him as demisexual. So, you know, his, his casual trysts are not up there. So it just depends on how you identify. And there are lots of men who identify as demisexual and even asexual. So it's not a truth across the board that men want casual trysts. Boom. And that's just like every man ever categorized. So in we can look at some of the shows from the past, even like um, Sex in the City, which I remember as being Sex in the City, but Sex and the City as we now know it, thanks to the Mandela effect. Um, sex and the City, uh, there were a few characters on there, like Samantha. She had like a crazy, crazy libido. And she, you know, was one of those women who wasn't looking for a relationship. She was looking for the casualness. She's not the only one on TV, but she is probably one of the bigger characters that we first saw come out on shows that were available uh, that were not pornography, right? So pornography might have also given us those ideas in the past to go, oh, yes, women just want you to walk in their house, pull off their clothes and do them. Oh, wait a second. No conversation, right? Oh, right. No conversation. So again, and I spoke about this on my last uh, my show last week. Um, we were talking about the pleasure playbook and we talked a lot about how, you know, one of the main things that I think is missing in the world is the conversation. And it's definitely missing from TV shows. So the sex myth of women want relationship and men want casual sex, not always true, for sure. And, you know, some, some research will show that. And there's a lot of research that indicates otherwise. So why would it be that women want relationship? So let's go with if this was true, there could be, there are women who do want relationship. Absolutely. There are men who also want relationship. Absolutely. So for a lot of women, in order to have sex and feel comfortable and confident in sex, and we've talked about this before as well, 
um, that there needs to be a comfort level with your sexual, there's sexual exciters and sexual inhibitors. And one of the sexual inhibitors could be the feeling that somebody could walk away from you or you could get pregnant. Uh, so that would be an inhibitor. So you might go, I don't want to have casual sex because I could end up getting pregnant and then I'm left with the baby, right? So there are a lot of reasons why why women in particular might avoid casual sex just because we get the consequences, 99% of them. Yes, there is the odd percentage of, of uh, STIs going on out there as well, but the real consequences come to childbirth because that's like lifelong, you know, you might end up with with things and situations that are also very um, power dynamic related that can be awkward or even harming. So for the most part, women are looking for somebody they can rely on because there's a, inherently we have like a safety thing going on that we don't necessarily want to raise babies on our own or have to get pregnant and, you know, deal with all of that. So there is some of that, but that is not true for all women. And I think with the advent, we'll call it, of, of use of all kinds of prophylactics and different ways of making sure that, you know, whether it's it's looking at the, the RISM method or using condoms or using birth control or using an IUD, whatever it is you're using for, for uh, pregnancy prevention, that's one thing. A lot, not all of those are going to work for STIs though, right? So, you know, the idea that your body could end up getting sick or end up getting pregnant could really put you off of casual sex for sure. So there is a component to it that would have women have a tendency towards desiring a relationship more. However, things in times have changed. And also looking at the identity of how people identify as women and men. And yes, that's very controversial and everybody wants to make it a big deal. Um, so we'll say that bodies with uteruses will have more tendency to be a little bit um, desiring a relationship more because there is the possibility of pregnancy. So, okay. so. One of the things, too, that is kind of a big fat lie in the world, and I think we're going to chalk this one up to uh, Freud. Yeah, we're going to give this one over to Freud because Freud had this concept that women who had clitoral orgasms were very premature with their sexuality because Freud knew nothing. <laughs> I can't say he knew nothing. He definitely developed some concepts that brought some different conversations to the forefront. So I'll give him credit for that. He did bring a lot of the sexual conversations to the forefront. His obsession with it was really interesting. So when we look at what he brought forward with, with women and saying that if you could have a vaginal orgasm, you were a fully developed, uh, a mature woman, and it's more infantile to have a clitoral orgasm. So I wonder how he felt about prostate orgasms versus penile orgasms. Well, he never talked about that, did he? No, because he probably didn't even know he could have a prostate orgasm. That's fine. That's fine, Freud. We're just going to go with you knew best. At the time, you probably just knew what you knew. 
So the the there is this illusion that's out there in the world too that the real orgasms are vaginal orgasms and hell no that's not true there are so many orgasms and i've talked about so many different kinds of orgasms on this show so if you if you would like to know some of those episodes let me know and i'll get them for you or you can go search through inspired choices network for sure you can do some keyword searches on there to find out about my shows about orgasms specifically energetic uh, g-spot a-spot you know vaginal clitoral you name it there's a lot of them out there so one of the things is that women uh you know women who believe that you know real orgasms are vaginal and men who believe that real orgasms are vaginal will end up losing a lot in relationship they'll end up losing a lot of the discovery the play and the curiosity and i'm all about the curiosity so for the most part and i think these numbers aren't even accurate that for the most part, women only orgasm about 35% of the time with a first-time fling. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or not. It could be, it could be, I mean, like, we don't know the demographics that they're actually looking at, who these people are, what their ages are, or anything like that. So if you're, you know, if you've already gone through menopause and you're having sex with somebody for the first time and you don't have the threat of pregnancy, you also know maybe that they have no STIs, so that fear is gone. Um, you maybe have a certain comfort level with your body, that could be gone too. So in Sex in the City, Samantha was the older of the group, I believe, and she had a certain confidence and air about her, and she wasn't really concerned about a lot of things that the younger women in the show were concerned about. So, you know, if you're only going to orgasm 35% of the time with a first-time fling, what are the chances that you're going to dive deep and go, yeah, I want more of that. Oh, I'll have that. Now, if you actually know the person, your chances are probably higher. The first time fling might be that it's the first time you had sex with them, but you actually knew them prior to that. So it's, uh, yeah, it could be very, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff around that, that information that I think is missing. So when, when I look at, different research, especially sex research, my question usually goes to what were the demographics? Sometimes they'll say it's a hundred, sometimes they'll be very clear about it. So, you know, hundred women, cisgender women, because usually that's the demographics, hundred cisgender women from this certain economic um, grouping, and they're usually Caucasian. So we don't have like a lot of research that's super inclusive that I want to be really clear on. So if I'm bringing any stats up today, chances are these stats are cisgender, heterosexual women who are probably Caucasian and probably middle class. So just so you know, and I think the experience is different for different women with coming from different cultures. And there hasn't been a lot of research provided for, uh, for different cultures or even different identities, how you identify. Um, your gender. So uh, we're going to move on to our some more myths. I don't know how many myths I'm going to get through because I have a lot of counter counter arguments on some of the myths, but uh, we will get down to that. So you're listening to The Pleasure Zone here on Inspired Choices Network, and we'll be right back after this commercial break. 
Are you secretly a voyeur, wondering what's going on in other people's sex lives? What if now is the time for a totally different sexual evolution? Are you interested in people who are pioneers of different sexual and pleasurable practices? Lean in now with Melitza Yelenich, where she will entice you and your body to know your own pleasure zone. On the Pleasure Zone radio show with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich, you'll receive tools, inspiration, and a foundation to allow yourself to receive more in your sex life and quite possibly other areas of your life as well. Listen for The Pleasure Zone with Milica every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspired Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email become a host at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. This is The Pleasure Zone with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich. To participate in the program today, join our live studio audience in our chat room at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. You can also make the choice to ask or comment by email info at melitzayelenich.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back, my sweet pleasure seekers. For those of you who are just joining in right now, we've been talking about sex myths. And for some of you, you've probably heard a lot of these sex myths over time, or maybe you haven't, maybe you're not like as obsessed with sex research as I am. And I think going back to university, one of the sex myths I remember um, learning about in one of my classes that was on like psych and sex at the same time. <laughs> so it's like trying to find my way through university with like the best possible fun courses I could find. So, you know, sexuality, psychology and sexuality, slap those together. What can I learn? And one of the things that we did talk about were the theories of Freud. and. Freud believed that women who had clitoral orgasms were kind of infantile in their sexual growth or their sexual capacities, and that only if you could have a vaginal orgasm were you truly a mature woman. He had a real thing against the clitoris for some reason, I think maybe because he didn't know how to work it. I think I'm right about that. <laughs> Oh, Freud, did you have your own Freudian issues? Oh, you did. It's true. That's why you had these issues. That's what you could talk about them for. All right. So moving right along, we're going to be talking more about sex myths, about certain other things that seem to be, and I think these are myths that come out from things that we watch. So a lot of these myths are things that we see over and over and over again in our lives. And whether that's that we've seen them in, you know, movies, TV, porn, whatever it happens to be, one of the things that is talked about is that really good sex happens 
during penetration. Like if, if you can move and groove your hips in a way that's like you're a twerking master, then you are excellent at sex. And the answer to that is, Nabob, sex is not just about penetration. So if you thought it was, oh boy, you are missing out on an entire universe of fun. So we've got core play, which is actually a term that was um, used by, and I don't know if it was coined by the fellow who wrote the book, She Comes First, can't remember his name right now, but She Comes First is a great book to actually discover that in fact, penetration is not the answer to the universe. There is way more, way more to sex and intimacy than the penetration itself. So when we look at um, what, you know, the myth around really good sex is what happens in, you know, in the penetration uh, minutes or hours, if you're lucky. However, really good sex starts with your life. What? Your whole life can be the way that you present yourself. So if you are walking around feeling sexy, that's going to add to your uh, to your sex life, to the intimacy, to your abilities to make you into somebody who's actually quite good at sex. So it's how you walk. It's how you present yourself. It's how you even whether it is like the knowledge you have that you can utilize, knowing some body parts is really helpful. Educating yourself, getting some tools. And guess the best educator is, I, I think you might not realize it, but actually you're the best educator for your body and your partner, whoever that happens to be, or partners are really great also educators for your body because through play you can learn a lot about yourself and about your body and what you desire and what you like so as we talked about on last week's show about the pleasure playbook for sexual bliss it really isn't a standard that you can say okay step one hug the person step two tweak their nipples three times step four slap their bum step five approach the genitals no, it doesn't work that way because not everybody is exactly the same. And for some people, the tweak the nipples three times might be too much. And what, what, what might they really want is maybe having their hair stroke. So step one, two, and three are not the way that it's going to work. But if you do not know how to explore bodies and you don't even know where to start, then absolutely, I can assist you with getting yourself in, like getting yourself on track and getting yourself started. And I have done some shows on self-exploration so that you can do that. So the sex myth that the best sex comes from what you can pull off in the bedroom in those moments that we call like actual sexual contact is not true. Even the things in your home, as we learned about from the book uh, by Emily Nagoski, called what is that one called um gotta think about that for a second um anyway Emily Nagoski's book is great <laughs> can't remember the name right now but she uh, talks a lot about sexual inhibitors and sexual exciters and in her in her book she does talk about how sometimes in the research that shows that there are environmental things in your home say for example in your home if your home is a disaster you're not going to feel so sexy and that sex isn't going to feel so great. So having 
an environment that's conducive to helping you feel sexy is also part of making you a really great sexual partner. Having your home feel sexy, having your space, your bedroom feel sexy, having wherever it is you're doing your dues, um, have it feel sexy, have it smell good, have it look good, have it so that your body, and you know why we want this? It's so your body is calm. When your body is calm, it connects with other people. When your body is in fight or flight, you're going to be either your mind is going to be in 500 different places or you're going to be in 500 different places. So in order to actually connect, you need to be calm, not calm, frozen, like where you can't move, can't budge and you're depressed because that is going to actually have you be on such an overdrive that you don't even know how to relate. So bringing it down bringing your body to calm so that you can connect. Now you can do that with your partner. Being in an environment that's calm is helpful for sure. So low stress is really important. Another part is high trust. If you actually know that your partner is going to be there for you after, then you can relax a little bit and not think, oh my God, are they going to walk away from me? Are they ever going to talk to me again? Is this ever going to be good? Do they even like me? Do they even want to if you feel confident and you trust that your partner is both there for you and you're there for them, and you have communication to understand that, then the trust factor is amazing in helping you feel calm. And then another aspect of that is being affectionate. So affection doesn't mean that you're only touching your partner when you want something from them, like you want to have sex with them, you want oral sex from them, you want, you know, whatever manual stimulation with your hands from them, or whatever it happens to be, that is not the only time to touch your partner. So times to touch your partner are when they invite it in, when they ask for it and request it. And also, if your partner isn't somebody who's vocal about that, asking them, too, would you like a hug? Can I touch you? Being playful about it, too. And yes, I still go for, uh, I still go after like being in a partnership with my husband for nearly 10 years, uh, 10 years in like a week, two weeks. Um, I still ask permission for a hug and I'll still ask, like, would you like a hug? I'll still ask because it's called respect for the person's space. And sometimes he'll say no. And I love that he'll respect himself enough to say no. And then I will say, like, I'd like one. Can you give me one later when you feel like it? So that, you know, there isn't like a disconnect. And yes, sometimes there can be feelings of rejection, but then you address that. So if you know that, that you like, if you know that rejection is going to be hard, then maybe you need to set something up in advance um, to be able to have the best sex ever. So the best sex does not come down to what you're doing during sex, because if you don't have all those connection points, if you don't have the high trust, the low stress and the high affection all of the time, then those times of, of like penetration and connection will not really be that significant for you they'll be there but it'll be like hey wait a second i need to trust you i need to feel low stress and i need to feel a high sense of affection in order to know that we're together right so when those are lacking it can be incredibly frustrating and it can be um it can actually lead to very frustrating sex too sometimes the sex will be uh purely like just for 
uh, stress relief because your body could be so stressed and needs stress relief. So yeah, you might have like a temporary relief. Uh, you'll get your, your, you know, endorphins going, your dopamine, like you get all your happy hormones going, your serotonin, your oxytocin, they all kind of kick in and then it changes. Right. So if you have it all the time, if you have somebody that you can trust that when you're in relationship with them, there's low, low stress, and then you have high affection going on, the chances are your sex is going to be amazing, even if it doesn't seem like you're maybe you're not having the five hours of sex like sting, but your sex can be fantastic because you're actually connecting all the time. The sex ends up being a bonus. So the sex myth of being good in bed comes down to what you do in the bedroom. No, it has to do with your life and how you approach life and how you are in your life, how you can like live better and how you can be kinder and all those other things. We're going to talk about one of my other favorite sex myths of, of all time, because I think there's so much confusion around this. And and I think, you know, coming into the month of June soon, uh, also this conversation is great because it is a conversation about sexuality. And one of the sex myths that are out there is that you're either gay or you're straight. And we just need you to choose. And God forbid, you might actually be a little of everything. And you might be bisexual, pansexual, omnisexual. You might be asexual you might have identities that I haven't even mentioned yet. And the thing is, it's a very binary way of being in the world and it's incredibly limiting. Um, but it is very much a heteronormative way of thinking. You're either this or that. And, and the irony is even within the LGBT community, there are still people who are gay who will say they don't agree with people being able to be bisexual it's wild so so there's the heteronormative ideal even for uh, even in the lgbtq community there still can be people who have the heteronormative way of thinking or the binary way of thinking that this is it can either be this or this we are looking at a spectrum people we've always been looking at a spectrum it's that we in the last hundred years have started to discuss the spectrum more and i'm so grateful for the spectrum and new language to actually describe these things so that you don't feel unseen or unheard right all right we're going to talk more about that sex myth of you're either straight or you're gay come on choose when we come back, you're listening to The Pleasure Zone here on Inspired Choices Network, and we'll be right back after this commercial. Are you secretly a voyeur, wondering what's going on in other people's sex lives? What if now is the time for a totally different sexual evolution? Are you interested in people who are pioneers of different sexual and pleasurable practices? Lean in now with Melitza Yelenich where she will entice you and your body to know your own Pleasure Zone. On the Pleasure Zone radio show with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich, you'll receive tools, inspiration, and a foundation to allow yourself to receive more in your sex life and quite possibly other areas of your life as well. 
Listen for The Pleasure Zone with Milica every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. Interested in masturbating for money, copulating for consciousness, and pleasuring on purpose? 21 Days of Sexual Magicism with sensual movement artist Milica Jelenich is an exploration of tools, processes, and actions that you can use to create more for your life, your body, your money inflows, and so much more. Graduated learning for all levels of interest. Learn at your own pace via video classes or join the yearly live class. Take a peek at www.melitzajelenich.com. How wonderful would it be to carry your favorite Inspired Choices Network host with you throughout your day? Well, now you can. Inspired Choices Network now has its very own mobile app. Our free app offers live streaming shows along with thousands of podcasts and TV episodes. Our shows cover a wide variety of topics. Whether you're waking up with us, carrying us through the day, and taking us to bed with you, we're always here for you to enjoy. We're easy to find. Just search for Inspired Choices Network in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. This is The Pleasure Zone with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich. To participate in the program today, join our live studio audience in our chat room at InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. You can also make the choice to ask or comment by email, info at MelitzaYelenich.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back, my sweet, sweet pleasure seekers. Just before break, we were talking about the sex myth. And I think this myth is is uh, still relevant today, that you're either straight or you're gay. Now pick, because ugh, we can't understand anything in between this which I'm so glad that they can actually acknowledge that there can be at least gay in there. So this, the research that was done, and I think, it, you know, we're talking like, okay, so we're in the 2020s now. I, I was so used to saying like 50 years ago, but we're now talking 70 years ago, the Kinsey reports and the Kinsey scale. So when the Kinsey, when Kinsey did all the research, there was all kinds of stuff that was uh, that was kind of brought to the forefront. You know, people were willing to go in and be recorded having sex for this research, right? Which was huge. Now you're also getting in the Kinsey reports, you're getting information about people you got to keep in mind that are actually willing to go out and have sex in front of other people and be observed, right? That's already like a whole subcategory of the human population that. It's not like they're observing people who are not willing to be observed, right? So we don't, that's the other funny thing about sex research is it's only, it's voluntary, right? So people have to be willing to show up. So we're going to get some things skewed a little in this research, possibly. We don't know for sure. But, you know, when people say things on a survey, that's one thing, but to actually have observed them is another. And yes, they did do a lot of survey information as well, of course, but um, the, on the Kinsey scale, they realized that there is not exclusively 
and we're going to use the psychological terms for this because at the time it was a psychological study. There wasn't exclusively heterosexual and there wasn't exclusively homosexual. Those are both psychological terms for how you identify sexually, how, how you are identified sexually. How you identify sexually would be gay or straight, probably. So, and within that scale, we've got a whole spectrum of love happening in many different ways. As we know that both gender and sexual orientation are very much evolving to this day. We've had new words all the time coming up, new, new different ways to identify. Your gender and your sexual orientation are not the same. And I think that's also a myth that some people think that your gender and your sexuality and also your romantic identity are all connected and they're not, they're, they're connected for you because they're how you identify, but not every single person who identifies one way, how can I put this? Just because you identify as a gay male doesn't mean that you were born um, AMAB, so assigned male at birth, doesn't mean that. It means that you identify as male and you enjoy the sex and company of men. And you might also be uh, you might be biromantic at the same time. Whoa, what does that bring in? That brings in a whole other conversation, right? So I think the whole myth around you either have to, you, you need to choose, you're either gay or straight. And I think this is happening a lot in the media. I see a lot of people being forced out of the closet. It's so freaking unkind. And, and also, um, you know, doing this, I've been looking at a lot of old, um, old clips and research. There was there was, you know, there were a lot of people who were actors in the early 80s who were always being harassed about, oh, are you dating? Who are, what guy are you dating? And they were actually lesbians, but they couldn't say it. And there was always this discomfort going on about saying anything about their, their identity. So this whole conversation about you have to be this and you have to be that we don't want to talk about anything in the middle. That's too confusing. And not only do you need to identify, you need to make it public. And then when you make it public, then people will harass you. So like, maybe we don't need to choose right away. Maybe it's ever evolving. And maybe it doesn't have to be public to the whole world, because you might want to be aware of how comfortable you are about saying whether you're gay or straight or anywhere in between, right? So that's spectrum because yes, that is considered the spectrum is it's not a circle or a sphere, which would be more cool. Kind of like we look at time. We also think of time as a straight line, but really it's a sphere. And what if sexuality was like a sphere and not a timeline of we've got, you know, heterosexual, homosexual, and then all the other sexuals in between but instead it's like a sphere and it's ever evolving and changing. It's very, um, for those of you who like Doctor Who, it's like the timey-wimey version of sexuality. So yes, we're moving on from the extremes, going into some more fun around aphrodisiacs. And like, I don't know about you guys, but I eat a lot of foods that are aphrodisiacs. Like I love chocolate, I love strawberries. There are a lot of foods that I love that are aphrodisiacs. And I wouldn't say that after eating them, all of a sudden my libido is like bumping. Um, maybe because I eat them all the time and my libido is always bumping. It's hard to say. <laughs> you know, one of the things that they say about aphrodisiacs is it's 
well, two things, and I don't know if they say it or if I'm just the one who says they say it, but I think part of it is the food is being experiential and textural. So, so for me, when I experience food that's text, uh, certain textures, like a really good moist cake with really good flavor will have my body excited more than say the components or the ingredients of that food it's more more for me about the texture of the food. So if somebody is saying that oysters are um, an aphrodisiac, sure, maybe they really like not only, maybe they're getting like a protein kick, some salt kick, um, and they like the slipperiness and it's the texture that they like. And for other people, it would be a right turnoff, right? So you've got to think of things as more, not just the, the components of it, but the textures of it as well. The components of aphrodisiac foods, for the most part, they're considered foods that will either lower your blood pressure um, or they'll help in some other way to increase all erectile function. And yes, all bodies have erectile tissue. So we're not just talking about penises. We're talking about clitoral erectile tissue, like nipples get erect. Our bodies have erectile tissue. So it's not um, yeah, when we talk about erectile tissue, we're not just talking about penises. Uh, maybe that's a myth in, in and of itself that uh, I wasn't seeing or looking for. You know, the myth that only only penises have erectile tissue. Meh, incorrect. So, so yes, if you want to eat those oysters and have that chocolate, go for it. It's more of an experience and even possibly just a, um, a Pavlovian response that we believe that it's going to be, you know, that whole ring the bell and you'll salivate, see an oyster, you'll get turned on. It can be that. It can be something that we have set up in our minds as truth because we've heard it so long. Hard to say. So another um, another sex myth is that they there's a myth that says that men think about sex something like every seven seconds or something so if you calculate that out that's thousands of times a day i don't even know how many thousands of times it's like eight thousand times a day and that's a lot right so if you're thinking about sex like over eight thousand times a day um you know that's incredibly distracting now whether your body is turned on 8,000 times a day? Maybe, um, maybe not. I don't know. I think it's a really, it's a really mm, huge thought. Like, I don't know who did the research on that. So I'm pretty sure there was no research on the every seven seconds as truth. But that what there was research on, though, was through the Ohio State University, they did a study, and they found that actually, on average, bodies with penises, um, think of sex about 19 times a day on average. Bodies with uteruses think about sex on average about 10 times a day. So on average, it's, you know, bodies with penises are thinking about it almost twice as much, right? And the, the, the other thought that they studied on that study was how often do bodies with penises think about food? And the food actually occupies the mind almost as much as sex does. So food is thought about about 18 times a day. And while for women, food is thought, or bodies with uteruses, think about food about 15 times a day. So for the most part, it might be because 
the bodies with uteruses are the ones who are usually the ones either preparing meals or making food or thinking about looking after people just as a societal norm historically that's what's been going on you know if we were still in the hunter-gatherer uh, phases then I think you know bodies with penises who were going out there hunting would think of that although there were lots of cultures where the bodies with uteruses were also hunters so let's look at and then we have all the intersex in between which is a whole other conversation we will be talking about things like that during our super happy gay pride month so coming up in june we'll be having lots of shows dedicated to fun topics that are very specific for pride so we do have a lot of other myths that are out there that are kind of funny and and i don't know how they can necessarily prove this or not, but I suppose uh, sense, a census would help for these things. Like there's a sex myth that blackout storms and pandemics lead to baby booms about nine months later. That term nine months later drives me nuts. You're pregnant for 40 weeks. 40 weeks is not nine months. Calculate that. So nine months would be 36 weeks. 10 months would be 40 weeks, but since we don't work with a four-month, uh, four-week, a month uh, situation, otherwise we'd have 13 months. Anyway, that's my whole annoyance with the nine months later. We just refer to it as what it is, the 40 weeks later. That would be helpful. Okay, so that's another miss right there. Miss that you're pregnant for nine months. You're pregnant for 40 weeks. On average, that is a full-term birth. Okay. So, okay, so one of the things that goes on during blackouts is, yes, maybe people are having more contact with each other. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be creating more babies. So the reality is um, the so-called blackout baby boom that's that people talk about or the pandemic baby boom, Duke University did a study about this, and it's an, actually an urban legend that goes back to the New York blackout of 1965, but it fails to account for the many other circumstances that account for baby booms, like contraception and peak periods of the month when women are fertile, as well as the fact that even if a couple did conceive, not every pregnancy would result in a baby, right? So things to consider. So we're gonna look at some more sex myths after this commercial break, you're listening to The Pleasure Zone here on Inspired Choices Network, and we'll be right back after this commercial. Are you secretly a voyeur, wondering what's going on in other people's sex lives? What if now is the time for a totally different sexual evolution? Are you interested in people who are pioneers of different sexual and pleasurable practices? Lean in now with Melitza Yelenich where she will entice you and your body to know your own Pleasure Zone. On the Pleasure Zone radio show with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich, you'll receive tools, inspiration, and a foundation to allow yourself to receive more in your sex life and quite possibly other areas of your life as well. Listen for the Pleasure Zone with Melitza every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. This is The Pleasure Zone with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich. To participate in the program today, 
join our live studio audience in our chat room at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. You can also make the choice to ask or comment by email, info at melitzayelenich.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back, my sweet pleasure seekers. Today we're talking about sex myths. And one of the sex myths that are out there, and I think it was really promoted by the Kardashians in particular, that they talked about um, sex as a great way to burn calories. Well, there's a few things with that. There have actually been some studies because there's studies done on like so many things, you'd be surprised. The University of Montreal, so yay Canada, did a study and showed that generally um, bodies with penises will burn more than 100 calories, while bodies with uteruses will burn about 69 calories. Isn't that a great number? And that is not a lot of calories compared to what you might be able to, say, burn with a light jog, um, where you might burn over 200 calories with a light jog for half an hour or so. So I think when you look at it is this is going to burn calories. This is my exercise. Now it can be if you are super athletic about it, if this is, if you have made it into a cardio activity, absolutely. If, if you're going at pretty standard rates for the average person, then it's not going to be super cardio related. It can bring your heart rate up. Absolutely. Um, if you are, you know, reaching orgasm well if you're reaching climax if you're in the orgasmic state for a prolonged period of time and you're going to climax then your heart rate is going to go increasingly higher so that can be a bit of it but you can have that kind of cardio response if you are walking vigorously running biking any of those things will do that as well so whether your body has the orgasmic response while you're walking, running, or whatever is not necessarily true. Although there are people who have uh, workout orgasms, and I was going to interview some people about that one day, and I don't know what happened to that, but that is a thing. Workout orgasms are for real. Orgasms that are workouts, they can also be real depending on your level of activity. So again, keep in mind that these studies that are done are generally there's you know a key number of people with a certain background going on with you know you're gonna have some some um yeah so you're not necessarily going to get a wide range of people who are being studied because not everybody's going to show up for a sex study to find out how many calories you're burning right so there may be people who are burning hundreds of calories during sex depending on what they're up to so if you are, you know, chasing your lover around the house for like half an hour beforehand and you're getting the workout, you could be burning a heck of a lot of calories just during your foreplay. Who knows? So another myth that's that's only a myth that could have come out in the last 20 or so years is that sexting, sexting yeah, is just for horny college kids. You don't sext if you're over 30 or 40 or 50. God forbid you would sex at 50. That's gross. So no, sexting is actually real. Lots of people sexed, lots of people over 50 sex, and lots of people over 60 even sexed. I know what. So these 
you know, what is sexting, right, for real? So sexting would be anything where you're sending a sexy message, a photo, um, digitally flirting, you know, whatever that happens to be for you through video chats or through, um, you know, fun scenarios that you might be chatting about, typing them out, um, texting them. So what you want to know, though, is for one thing, that if you are, you know, in your early years of doing sexting, that the things you send, no matter if you try and erase them, are there for life. They're really there. There's always a way to recover them. So, you know, be really aware of what you're doing when you're sexting. And I, I think even with, you know, whatever generation you're in, if you're new to, I'm just going to say, if you're new to sexting, it's just to be aware that these things are digitally there forever they can always be recovered um that is you know one of the things why you know people get their their tech taken away from them during court um procedures is because they know that even if you try to erase it there's always a way to recover it so another sex myth is that having a young lover means that you're going to have mind-blowing sex and that is a big, eh. so, you know, I have to say, even though that if you're younger, you might have more endurance or higher energy, but you might not have the experience or the knowledge or a lot of other things. So there is not like a definition that being younger is going to make you a better at sex. For sure not. So you know, it can, it can be interesting, but it's not going to be necessarily like the, the most mind-blowing sex of your life. What it really comes down to, mind-blowing sex comes down to, like we talked about earlier, um, you know, you need to have that trust, you need to be able to feel comfortable, like no stress, and then you need affection. That's where mind-blowing sex comes from, is the chemistry that comes out of all of that. And it really doesn't have to do with how long somebody's been on the planet. If somebody's really good at communicating and they're like in their early, you know, early 20s or something, um, and they know how to ask for what they desire and they're actually very comfortable with their body, fantastic. You could also be, you know, 60 and not know what you desire because you've never had sex that you enjoyed. So it's experience is not necessarily. Um, coming with age, not necessarily. And it's also uh, communication, I think, is really what it comes down to. Is can you Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Zone with sensual movement artist Milica Yelenich. The Pleasure Zone returns next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Mountain, and 5 p.m. Pacific on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. We hope you'll join us. Until then, have the best week of your life by choosing to be turned on and tuned in to your body.